going on, guys? Wow, it's bright and yellow. Wow. Um, welcome to Revolution Church. I am Dustin Cooley. I have a few quick announcements, and then we'll get things started. Um, so, first off, um, this is October, and we're kind of like in the middle of October now, so we're coming up on October 31st, um, which, if you are a good Protestant, you would know is Reformation Day. Anyone? Yeah. Okay, so there's like three of us that are nerds. Okay, so anyway, David Dowdy is having a Reformation Day party at his house. Um, what's your address, Dave? 1882 So if you want to know where that's at, get a hold of Dave. It's going to start at 6 p.m. Uh, at his house. Um, also, we have free market coming up. That's going to be November 7th, and we're taking donations for uh, free market up until October 25th. So if you have donations, if you have stuff you want to, um, to donate to that, see me, see Autumn, Dave, or Steve, or Kelly here in the front. Okay. Um, so I'll go ahead and pray, and then we're going to put on some music, get up, say hey to somebody you don't know, and then we'll get started. So I'll go ahead and pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for this time that you let us set aside to come together to learn more about you, to worship together. Um, God, we ask you to open our ears and open our hearts to what you want us to hear um, and what you want us to take away from this. I ask you, God, to be with Dave as he delivers the message. Um, be with everyone here. Um, in Christ's name I pray. Amen. What's up, Revolution? <laughs> Rolf's in the back distracting me. How are you guys doing this evening? All right, we'll take it, whatever, yeah. Uh, I see some new people here, and that's really cool. Um, but anyway, like Dustin told you guys during the announcements, this month is Reformation Month. I don't know if that's a real thing, but that's what I'm calling it, because I'm really excited. Uh, October 31st is Reformation Day, and that's like not like a made-up Christian holiday to like combat Halloween. Anyone grow up in that family? Like, Halloween is for the devil. Like, we don't dress up. We don't... That wasn't me, but, like, I feel for you guys. Like, I feel really sorry for you guys. Because <laughs> nothing is better than going around to strangers' houses and getting free stuff. It is awesome. I wanted to take it up for a living, but Mom said no. Um, but what we, what we celebrate on Reformation Day, October 31st, um, and what I've, I celebrate it every year for the last couple of years, or a few years, uh, what we celebrate on Reformation Day is the bravery of men and women who are willing to take on false teaching in their day and cling to the Bible. Um, that's what we're celebrating. Um, and the leader of these people was a dude named Martin Luther. And a lot of people get this guy confused. This is not Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther was a white German man <laughs> alive in the 1500s. So this is like years before the the civil rights movement, so don't ever get that confused. My favorite thing is whenever you're talking to someone about Martin Luther and they get confused in the middle and they're like, hold on, wait, when did, what year did you say? 1517? What are you talking about? It's a really good time. And um, this dude was raised Roman Catholic, um, and he was actually a monk, uh, pretty cool, the coolest monk in like all of history. And he saw this. He saw that the Catholic Church was teaching things that he could not find in the Bible, um, he was studying scripture all the time and just sees, man, some of this stuff isn't lining up. Some of this stuff is just raw tradition for the sake of tradition. That there was lots of opinions um, that couldn't be backed up with the word of God. It couldn't be backed up, backed up with the Bible. And just, I want to take a second and say, if you guys are, if anyone here is here and you're Catholic, um, this is a safe place for you. Um, no one's getting bashed on. That's not my intent. I'm just telling you guys some history and I hope you guys feel comfortable. Um, but... He sees things going on in the Catholic Church. He's got a problem with it. He decides to 
call it out and try to have some discussions and write some books about it. So what, he's, what he was really trying to do was reform the Catholic Church um, to take it back to its biblical roots. What, was, what, did the, what does the Bible say? What is genuine Christianity? And what he did is he rediscovered five core doctrines. Um, and I say rediscovered because the Bible had always taught these things. They had just went ignored for a long, long time. Um, these are the things that we call the five solas. Has anyone ever heard of those things? The three people that I thought would raise their hand. That's what I'm talking about, right? <laughs> the, the nerds. Um, these things are called the five solas. Um, sola is Latin for alone or only. Um, and the five big things that he said is, is scripture alone. Scripture alone is where we get our beliefs from. Um, faith alone is what saves. We are saved by God's grace alone. Uh, we are saved by Christ alone. And because of all that, um, God saved us for his glory alone. And all glory is to God. So those are your five. Um, scripture, faith, grace, Christ, and glory to God. Um, those are your five solas. And, and this changed everything. This changed the face of Christianity as we know it. There was, there was a split in the church. And uh, we get the, we're called Protestants. We're, it's, the Protestant church was born. And people hated Martin Luther. People hated this dude. Like there was like uh, like money out on his head. Uh, the Catholic Church wanted him dead because of his steadfast faithfulness to the Bible and his rejection of everything not found in there or at least deduced from it. Um, but again, everything changed once he started this movement. And fun fact, we're called Protestants. Um, and most of us in this room are Protestant. Essentially in the United States, if you're not Catholic, you're Protestant and you're a Christian. Just throwing that out there to you. Uh, we're called Protestant. The root word being protest. He protested against the church. See, even if you're not a Christian, you might want to come back because you learned something today. I'm like a Snapple lid. Um, so just throwing that out to you. That's, that's why we're called Protestants. Um, <laughs> that was stupid. I don't know where that came from. Um, so I figured in light of all of that, right, in light of Reformation Day and us being Protestant, that it would be a good thing for us to go through the five solas. Um, and we're going to take a few weeks and we're going to do that. And tonight we're going to start with the first one. We're starting out with sola scriptura. Um, and don't get freaked out. It's Latin because that's how, like, that's the language that was really common that scholars would write in back in the 1500s. Uh, but it means scripture alone. That was just the popular language. Don't get freaked out. Um, but here's the definition. And there's going to be some stuff up here. Um, the definition of sola scriptura, as, as we're going to define it for our purposes this evening, is that scripture alone, right, Genesis to Revelation, Genesis through Malachi in the Old Testament, and Matthew through Revelation in the New Testament, scripture alone has ultimate authority over believers with regard to faith and practice, that it's God's word, he's given it to us, and it has all authority over us. Um, faith, meaning this, uh, what we believe about God, right, uh, his character, right, that he's holy, that he's righteous, um, that he's loving and he's a, he's a good judge and he's compassionate towards the people who would repent. Um, what we believe about his character, what we believe about sin, that everyone is uh, born a sinner, that we rebel against God daily, uh, what we believe about salvation, um, that God has sent Jesus Christ to earth to suffer our punishment for our sins so through faith we would be saved, um, what we believe about him. So that's faith. And then in practice, um, which means how we're to live our lives as God's people. If we believe the gospel, um, the kind of lives that we're supposed to live, how we're supposed to behave, um, our mindset and mentality towards various things. Um, and what we see in the Bible for these, this bit of practice is uh, broad and very specific moral commands. Broad commands being things like love your neighbor, right? Love your enemies, right? Things like that. Love everyone that you come in contact with. There's a very broad thing, love your neighbor as yourself. And then sometimes specific commands, right? Like don't steal, don't lie, don't kill anyone, right? Things like that, very specific commands as well that we're supposed to obey in order to live holy lives. So faith and practice, that's what the Bible teaches us. Um, now this doctrine 
of Sola Scriptura is the first one that we mention because this is the foundation of everything. This is incredibly important for us. It's the foundation of all. Uh, A a really good uh, analogy or metaphor, I don't know, I never took an English class, I'm not sure which word I'm trying to use, uh, is that Scripture alone is the foundation that three pillars rest on, faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone, and then the roof of everything is glory to God alone. I think that's a beautiful thing. We build everything off of the Bible. So this is a rock-solid place. Everything we think, believe, and do comes from the Bible. Um, now, that being said, Scripture alone doesn't mean that we don't read other books. Right? You ever hear that redneck cry? If it ain't the Bible, I ain't reading it, man. And if it ain't the King James Bible, I ain't reading it either. I actually heard, uh, I heard this one lady say, if the King James was good enough for Jesus, it was good enough for me. <laughs> that is one of my favorite things I've ever heard in my life. I'm just like, huh? <laughs> okay, right on. Um, so, no, that's not, like, we're not saying you can only read the Bible or that you should only read one certain kind of translation or that you shouldn't, we're not saying you shouldn't study other things and we're not saying that you shouldn't take advice from people at times, right? Please be educated. <laughs> please, right? Please, like, study art, study history, study biology, study chemistry. Please, we need educated Christians because we live in a day and age where, like, being a Christian is equated to being an idiot, Right, so please don't like like validate that kind of a thing by not knowing anything. Study things, be educated. But it simply means this that everything that we hear, everything that we think, everything that we feel, that we read, whatever, is all subject to correction by the Bible. That's what we mean by Sola Scriptura. Everything is subject to correction. Um, now by what reason do I say these things? Right, this is good. Why, by what reason do I say these things? How do we know that the Bible should be trusted this much? Because everything really hinges on that question. That's what we're getting at. If the Bible is our, is our authority, we have to trust it. And we claim it's the word of God itself. But why? How do we make such a claim? I'm glad you asked. Uh, because as luck would have it, I have a couple of reasons prepared. I'm glad you guys were asking good questions. Uh, two reasons um, that I'm going to give you. One's kind of nerdy. It has a lot to do with history. It's called an apologetic argument, which doesn't mean that I'm sorry for saying it. Uh, Apologetics is a defense of the faith. And the other one is just very, very spiritual. So we're going to go ahead and and pop into it. Again, if you need some notes to follow along, it's going to be over here. That that looks nice, doesn't it? I didn't know that was going to be there. Well done, Corey. That looks slick. Um, (laughs) All right, so here, we're going to go to the apologetic argument. Uh, We're going straight to the Gospels, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are historically accurate biographies of Jesus' life. Um, But before we go any further, we have to validate that claim, right? We have to establish that these biographies are trustworthy. So as quick as I can, I'm going to try to keep this because I know not all of you guys are into history, but this is really profitable. Just pay attention. Um, The first thing we have to ask ourselves is, who wrote these biographies of Jesus? Um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right, that's good. These are real dudes. Look it up. Right, his, history tells us these are real guys. Two of them were eyewitnesses to Jesus' life. Uh, Matthew and John, they, they walked around with him for three years. Um, and the other two, Mark and Luke. Mark talked to Peter, right, one of the apostles that followed Jesus around. Um, talked to Peter. Peter told him what Jesus did and said. Mark writes it down. Uh, Luke goes around and interviews a lot of different people who knew Jesus and saw Jesus and heard what he taught and what he did. And he writes it down. So we have two eyewitnesses and two secondhand witnesses to the life of Jesus. Now, if these things are accurate, those are incredibly good sources, right? The second thing we're going to go to is date. When were these books written? Um, These four gospels were written uh, within the first century. Right, which is great because that's whenever Jesus lived and that's whenever Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John would have been alive. So the date, um, how we date these, is help establish that the books were really written by them. Make sense? Um, just like if, if, like people say, like, you ever heard of the Gospel of Thomas? 
like any of that crap you see on the Discovery Channel. <laughs> I love it. Uh, it's good times. What, what the problem with those are is like the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Judas and stuff like that. The oldest copies are from like 500 A.D., which means that there's no way that a dude who lived in the first century could have written that, right? So that doesn't make sense. But these four Gospels that we have were written within the first century, so that helps establish their credibility. Now, we could do a couple more historical things, but we're just going to pop right into it. Um, Why did these dudes write these things? Why did these guys write these biographies of Jesus? What was their intention, right? Did they write, why did they write and preach that Jesus died and came back from the dead um, and and that he claimed he was God? Did they do it for money? Did they do it for fame? Did they do it for women? Right? Did they do it for power? These are all good reasons to start a religion, right? Like get rich, have like the if you control like the keys to heaven and hell, you get to like control everyone in the room, right? These are all like good reasons to make up a religion that's not true. Here's the problem with that. Um, history tells us that these dudes who wrote these gospels and, and preached uh, that Jesus was God and that he came back from the dead, um, they were poor. So money couldn't have been it, because they never gained any money in this life. Um, it couldn't have been for fame because um, they were Jewish. Just take a second. Uh, they were Jewish, and Roman people hated Jews, right? And the Romans c- controlled the area that these guys were living in, preaching in. And then Jews hated Christians. So the moment that these Jewish guys became Christians, they went from just one group hating them to everybody hating them. So it couldn't have been for fame, and it, it couldn't have been for women because history doesn't tell us anything about the disciples being like Joseph Smith and like getting all these women on him. Um, and it couldn't have been for power. And the reason why I say it couldn't have been for power is because how much power does a person have if they can't save their own lives or the life of anyone around them that they love? And all of these guys died for what they were preaching. Their friends and families were dying for their faith in Jesus as God and as a risen Savior. Right? So that leads me to this testimony of blood. Right? All these guys died for what they were teaching. And there was no reason to preach this stuff about Jesus if they were lying. They gained nothing in this life. So the only thing that I can come to is that they were reporting what they saw with their own eyes. Right? There's no other reason that they would have been doing it. And any reason that you can come up with aside from that just gets crazier and crazier and makes less and less sense for why they would have been preaching these things. So I said all that to say this. These gospel biographies are accurate. These dudes were reporting what they saw because they saw it. Right? Um, so these are true eyewitnesses of not Jesus's, not only Jesus' works and his resurrection, but also of Jesus' words and his teachings. So that leads me to this. If these, are credible, uh, if, if, if these gospels are credible, I want to know what did Jesus teach. Right, this, could, this is where we're going to come down on. The first thing, Jesus claimed divinity. John 8, 58, Jesus says, before Abraham was, this is thousands of years before Jesus, before Abraham was, I am which is also what God calls himself in the Old Testament. So Jesus is claiming divinity, and we could use a whole lot of other verses, but I'll spare you that this evening. So Jesus claimed to be God himself, and then he proved it in his resurrection. And I say that because of this. John 10, 18. Jesus says, No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again, for this is what my Father has commanded. So Jesus says, I have the authority over life and death. I'm going to lay my life down, and I'm going to take it back up again. I don't know about you guys, but anyone that says they're God and then says, Hey, I'm going to die, and I'm coming back in three days. I'm going with that guy for God. I don't know about you guys. Like, if we're having an election, I'm voting for Jesus. Like, ten times out of ten, he is God. Um, Right, so what else did he do? He claimed he's God. He proved it in his resurrection. And then um, Jesus claimed this. He claimed that the Old Testament was Scripture. Uh, John 10, 35, Jesus says, Scripture can't be broken. 
He's referring to the Old Testament. He says it can't be broken, which means it's inerrant. It's true. It's completely accurate. And then in Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 through 9, he refers to the Old Testament scriptures as the word of God. Right? So this thing, this Old Testament, Genesis through Malachi in your Bibles, carries weight with Jesus. He says this is God's word. It's always true. It can't be broken. But what about the New Testament? The New Testament wasn't written yet whenever Jesus was teaching. Jesus says this. He says that the coming teachings of the apostles which would become the New Testament writings, right, the letters and stuff that they wrote, um, that they would be of God, right? And a lot of people don't know this passage right here, and this is really important for us. Check this out. John 14, 23 through 26. Jesus replied, All who love me will do what I say. My Father will love them, and we will come and make our home with each of them. Anyone who doesn't love me will not obey me. Check this out. And remember, my words are not my own. What I am telling you is from the Father who sent me. I am telling you these things now while I am still with you. But when the Father sends the Advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will teach you everything and remind you of everything I have told you. So Jesus there is saying, what you're going to teach, he's talking to his disciples, what you're going to teach, the things you're going to write whenever you're talking about me and how people should believe and how people should live their lives, it's not going to come from you, it's going to come from God the Holy Spirit is going to tell you what you should say. Right? So if Jesus is God, he claimed it and he proved it, then he is holy and good. He is what we call omnibenevolent, if you guys like big words. He is all good all the time. Right? He can't lie is what that means. So whatever Jesus teaches is true. Jesus taught that the Old Testament and the coming New Testament are the word of God, that they're inerrant, that they have authority over everybody. Therefore, the whole Bible is the word of God. I expected some applause there, but you know, don't worry about it. Uh, there was my argument for the day. All right, uh, no one thought that was funny, whatever. Um, we don't use circular logic is why I wanted to throw this argument out for you first. We're not using circular logic for why we believe the Bible is true. Because a lot of people say, why do you believe the Bible is true? Because the Bible says it's true, right? which is a terrible, terrible argument. It's called circular logic. But what we're doing is we're appealing to what does God himself, Jesus, who proved his divinity at his resurrection, what does Jesus say? What does God say about the Bible? Right? There is no higher a court, court to appeal to. Right? If God knows all, there's no higher court for us to appeal to on what the Bible says. Uh, but that's just a nerdy, historical, logic-based argument that I like to give people so that unbelievers know that we don't just believe the Bible's true out of ignorance or out of tradition. Um, that there are good reasons to believe it's true. Um, but there's another reason that I believe this book is true. Um, it's, really, it's, it's, intensely, it's an intensely spiritual reason. Christians believe the gospel. Right, that Jesus Christ has paid for our sin and was crucified in our place, suffering God's wrath as a substitute for us and was raised from the dead. We believe that because we've been brought to spiritual life. Um, the book of Ephesians talk about how, talks about how we were dead in our sins, um, how we were spiritually dead. And yet God, through us hearing the gospel that someone told us, that Christ has made atonement for us, God spoke to us through it and caused us to believe. Right, that God gave us the gift of faith and brought us to life or regenerated us, if you want to use that term, and caused us to believe. Now, why? Why do I know that? Because Jesus says this about his sheep. He says, the people surrounded him, Jesus, and asked him, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? If you're the Messiah, tell us plainly. And Jesus replied, I've already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is the work I do in my Father's name. But you don't believe me because you're not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. 
So we believe this because we heard the words of Jesus through the gospel. We heard God speak through this gospel and he brought us to life and we believe it's true. We can hear our Father's voice when he speaks to us through his word. Right? So the Holy Spirit has caused us to see and hear things spiritually. And we experience the truth of the word of God because we are now alive. We're no longer dead. We're no longer spiritually blind or deaf. That's why we believe. We've been given faith. We've been given the ability to recognize our Father's voice whenever he speaks to us. Right? And I just want to throw that before you guys so we can bear all, all this in mind. Um, apologetic and historical arguments are great responses to give people for why we believe in the scriptures. Um, they are phenomenal supplements to, to Christians to encourage us in our faith. I'm never going to take away from those. It was apologetic arguments that helped lead me to Christianity. But they are not why you believe. They're not why you're a Christian. Right? So if you're ever confronted by an unbeliever about your stance on the Bible's authority, um, you should give them uh, uh, your reasoning behind it, but you should never be foolish enough to expect an argument to fix what the Bible calls a heart problem in them, that they're hard against God. You should never expect anything but God himself to, to do that. No one's ever been argued into the kingdom of God ever. Right? God has to do something. So give a defense, but always be praying for people, right? because it's God who grants faith to us. Um, so the Bible's God's word, right? It is, it's supremely authoritative over us, but, this is a good question to ask, does it ever talk about itself? Be- better phrased, does God ever say anything about his own word, right? Does God ever say anything about the Bible? And this is going to be our anchor text that we're going to be in this evening, which makes this the longest intro I've ever done in the history of preaching. Let's get on it, right? 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Um, and I haven't said this yet. We're preaching on the Bible, and I didn't say this. There are Bibles out there. If you're new here or the Bible you have is like hard to understand, please take that with you. This is an especially good night to take the Bible with you home. Uh, but 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 15 through 17. Paul's writing to Timothy. It's like his spiritual son. He says, You have been taught the Holy Scriptures from childhood, and they have given you the wisdom to receive the salvation that comes by trusting in Christ Jesus. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. All right, so in context, what Paul's saying here, he's charging Timothy with the task of holding tight to the Bible and teaching its truth, whether it's popular or not, because people won't always want to hold scripture as authoritative over them. They just won't. But in this text, we can pull out some major points that we know the Bible teaches us, right? Major points. Again, not exhaustive, but in a nutshell, what does the Bible teach? One, it teaches us about God. Paul says it teaches us what is true. God is truth. His word is truth. So what what does it say about God? Um, The Bible teaches us that God is holy and righteous, that he's good, that he loves us, um, and that he's a good judge. And what that means is he punishes wickedness. Not one wicked action ever goes unseen or unpunished by God, because he is so good, he must execute justice, right? The Bible also tells us that God is sovereign. Keep that in mind, God is sovereign. Nothing happens that's beyond his control. In fact, he controls every event that has ever happened and works all things for his glory and the good of those who love him according to his purposes, right? So it tells us about God, that he's just this big, huge God, right? A lot of times we get this small view of God that like, eh, he doesn't really get involved too much, but he does, Right? And he's good and he loves us and he's also righteous and just. Right? And the Bible also tells us a second thing about ourselves. Right? Paul says that the Bible points out what is wrong in our lives. Right? And, and what about us? The Bible tells us we're sinners. Right? We're wicked. 
right? That, that we constantly are rebellious against God, that we do things that he doesn't want us to do, and the things that he wants us to do, we say, no, thank you, I'd rather do my own thing, that we want to be our own gods, essentially, and do what we want all the time. And that's wickedness. And remember, God's righteous, he's just. No wickedness ever goes unpunished, right? So as holy and good as God is, we are the opposite of that. We're sinners. So we need help. Right? We don't want to suffer God's wrath. And thirdly, the Bible tells us what God has done to save us. Right? Paul says, like, we've been given the wisdom to receive salvation by trusting in Jesus Christ through the scriptures. Right? And this is nothing less than the gospel. That God, being a righteous judge and also being merciful and compassionate, would send Jesus, send his son to earth to suffer in our place for the things that we've done. That for as unrighteous as we are, that Jesus would be righteous. And then take our suffering in our place so that God could be still a good judge and still um, merciful towards sinners. And that through faith alone, believing that Jesus died in our place and was raised from the dead on the third day, we're saved. Right? That's what God has done. And then lastly, the Bible tells us that how we're supposed to live if we worship, if we're going to worship God, if we're going to believe the gospel, if we're going to trust and live lives pleasing to God. Paul says it's that the Bible prepares us for every good work, right? How, how we're supposed to live. And again, these are the broad concepts and specific moral commands um, of the Bible to us. So everything we've said points to this. The Bible is the ultimate ruler over our thoughts over our beliefs, and over our lives. It's, it's always correct on everything that it teaches. Um, and I think to paraphrase, I think it's R.C. Sproul, he says, if I have a problem with what I've read in the Bible, the problem is with me, not the Bible, because God's never wrong. Right? And I think that's something that we would all do well to bear in mind. Um, but again, this doesn't mean that the Bible talks about every single thing ever, right? Like, you can't be like, man, what kind of car should I buy I'm going to flip through there. God's a Ford man, apparently. Page 67. I had no idea, right? Like, it, the Bible doesn't work that way. It doesn't necessarily talk about everything. So there may be some good, true stuff. I'm not saying God's a Ford man. I drive a Cavalier. I don't know anything about trucks. Um, but like, and there may be some good, true stuff that's not in the Bible. But, listen to me, everything is subject to correction by the Bible. Right? So if something contradicts what Scripture teaches, it's false, plain and simple. Um, that's what we believe because this is God's word. Right? The Bible is the standard of truth because, and check this out, this is good reasoning. It's the only thing that we have that we know for certain is from God himself. And God will not contradict himself. He is infallible. Right? So scripture alone is our standard. God's word is a light to us and it will never fail us because God never fails. But why does this matter? It's probably what you're asking yourself. Why have you done all this arguing? Why does this stuff matter? Um, I'll tell you. This is huge there are always going to be competing authorities in our lives that attempt to draw us away from Scripture. That's why this matters. That's why this is the foundation of everything that we believe, that Scripture alone will rule over us and tell us what to believe and tell us how to live, because there are always going to be things pulling us away from the Bible. Paul talks about it in, in that same bit that he was talking to Timothy. Chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, Paul says, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. You don't believe me? Turn on the, the Christian preaching channels, right? And watch like T.D. Jakes and Joel Osteen. Lord, please save us. Um, like people don't want to hear truth. 
It was true then. I'm not saying like the times are getting worse and like we're living in the end times. And we might be. I don't know. I think the end times started at Pentecost, but that's a whole other argument to get into. Um, the world has always sucked. Like people have always been, except for like the beginning, whenever God declared it good before sin hit. Um, I wanted to clarify that for you real quick. Um, people have always not wanted to listen to the Bible. People are rebellious by nature, so I'm not saying that we're necessarily any worse now than, we, than people were whenever Paul wrote that. But we can look around and we can see people don't want to hear the truth. They don't want wholesome teaching. They want whatever's going to make them feel good. Right? So let's take some time for a minute and draw some lines between competing authorities and the Bible and see where God differs with them and how Scripture is just superior by experience and by what it says, and we just know it's true. Um, and by the end, we're going to see that this doctrine, hear me, is more than just a way for us to be intellectually right about a lot of things. It's way more than that. But I think the first thing worth noting is how our culture, or like the Bible talks about, man's wisdom, um, how it conflicts with God's word. Right? And here's what usually happens. We often we get to a place um, as a society, and we're there now, um, where we think that we are so smart and we are so evolved uh, that we can, as a society, fix our own problems ourselves and therefore rid ourselves of a need for God, or at least of a need for God as he has revealed himself to us in Scripture. And we come up with just stupid ideas about God and like what he does and stupid ideas about ourselves based on cultural trends, essentially. Right? We've done that. Right? Generally, theistic culture in America, that means people that believe in God, generally people that believe in God um, in America says... That, um, or say, rather, says, that made no sense, say that man is essentially good, right? And this is a thought that was kind of like pre-World War One, so you can see how well it worked out. Um, like pre-World War One, man is essentially good. Um, we don't really need God because man just needs to be put um, in a good enough situation that we're a civilized enough society and we're enlightened enough and we're smart enough that if man is put in a good situation and he's given the right environment, he will thrive and he will do good and he will be compassionate and he'll be educated and just be a good person in general, right? That was an idea that was like pre-World War I and it's still around today, right? And if man is essentially good by himself, then there really is no need for God because there's really no sin and therefore there's no need for the gospel, Right? Because people are essentially good. Right? But before we even go to the Bible, like, let's just take a minute and like, look around and see if that crap is true or not. Right? There's no way that that's true, that people are essentially good. People suck. If you don't think I'm like a riot, you've never worked in a service job. <laughs> Anyone else? Like work at Walmart? I know I've got a couple people service job. They're terrible. People are awful. Right? No? Okay, whatever. Um, people are terrible. Like more people, consider this, people are rude. Um, and I don't mean just a little bit, because sometimes people can put on a good mask and act pretty polite in public. But like we all know ourselves, and behind closed doors, all people are pretty bad. All people are like, incredibly selfish, self-centered, want to do what they want. They'll usually step on people that get in their way to accomplish their dreams. Um, and consider this, too. You want to say, like, human beings are essentially good? More people have been murdered in the last hundred years than ever before. Like, that is a statistical fact. More people have died. More people have been murdered. Look at the Holocaust. Right? Look at Pol Pot. Look at Mao Zedong. Look at the Kim dynasty. Right? Look at Joseph Stalin. You want to say people are good? There's no way. There's more violence now than there ever has been before. Ever. And yet culture would tell you, man's essentially good and people just need the right environment. And there are people who are like shooting up schools that grew up in good homes. 
There's no way that that's true. Surely there must be evil. Surely there must be sin. We can see it with our own eyes. People do what, like we know what they ought not do. So surely men are wicked. Surely we must need some kind of rescue because deep down we all know that we've done things that we ought not do as well, right? We've all sinned. Like there's things that keep you up at night. That you, Man, I shouldn't have talked to him like that. Man, I shouldn't have taken that. That didn't belong to me, right? I shouldn't have done this. I should have treated my kids better. I should have been a better husband, whatever it is. We all know that we've done things that we ought not do. And we see in Scripture that God declares that the same wickedness that we see and experience is actually in us, and it's actually in the world. God, the Bible says that everyone's went their own path. No one has turned to God. Everyone's a sinner like by nature, and that we're going to progressively get worse and worse as we withdraw ourselves from God. Right? So the Bible trumps the culture on the problem of the human condition because the Bible is actually accurate to what we see. It says that we have a heart problem, and nothing is going to fix it except the gospel, so we need help. Another voice contending for our attention um, over the Bible is religious tradition. This is the authority that Martin Luther fought so hard against. And these are like your religious people that you usually hear about, that they would come up with their own rules for living that's not found in the Bible. Right? A bunch of just a list of man-made rules that's been passed down from like their daddy and their great-granddaddy and like so on and so forth. Um, Or Religious tradition means that people are adding to faith alone, in Christ alone for salvation. That you have to not just believe, but you also have to be baptized or you're not a Christian. Or you not only have to believe, but you have to you know, dress a certain way or look a certain way or avoid going to certain places or not you know, doing certain things that the Bible doesn't even talk about. And the reasoning behind religious tradition is usually, this is what we've always done. Again, this is what my great-granddad did and just passed it on down. And who are you to challenge it? That's usually the mentality behind religious tradition, not scripture. Right? And this is probably, I'm just going to be honest, this is probably the most disturbing thing to me about it all. Right? Because within religious tradition, like these are Christians doing this kind of thing. That, that for whatever reason, Christians who have the Bible, God's word right in front of them, would ignore what the Bible says or not seek out what the Bible says in favor of religious tradition. Right? In favor of these man-made concepts and rules. They wouldn't take time to reflect on or study the Bible themselves. But instead, they would allow themselves to be spoon-fed garbage. A bunch of man-made junk. All right, these are the things today that we call legalism. Um, which means adding to the commands of God. All right, these are things like you can never, ever, ever drink alcohol and be a Christian. Women have to wear skirts, which I've always found to be funny. Because like women, some of them wear like real short skirts. I think that's funny. Um, like women... <laughs> Whatever. Uh, women have to wear skirts. Dudes have to wear like long sleeves and, and pants, which would just be hell on earth for me. Um, like, like no tobacco ever. There is a list of ten words that you can never ever say ever. I mean, you can talk really bad to someone without using those ten words, and God's okay with that. But like these ten words, never. Um, you can't ever go to a bar. You can't ever go hang out with this kind of people. You can't ever get tattoos. Things like that, right? That's, those are some examples of legalism. And none of those kinds of things are found in the Bible. Right? Religious tradition calls things sin that God doesn't. Um, and that's a problem. And, and, and here's what's the bigger problem with these legalisms. If someone wants to put themselves under those traditions, that's completely fine. If they, if they feel like that that's what they should do, that's totally fine. But here's the problem with legalism and religious tradition most of the time. They cancel out God's call to love people and be involved with people because the tradition forbids those who are following it 
to be around the things that it calls sin. Essentially. So if it says don't drink, you aren't allowed to be around people who do. You're not allowed to go to bars. You're not allowed to hang out with alcoholics and try to talk to them. Um, Definitely not allowed to hang out with drug addicts or drug dealers or do any of that kind of stuff. Right? And yet, what do we see Jesus telling us to do? Jesus tells us to go and be involved with people who are sinning. To go be involved with people who are, who are living opposed to God so that you could show them the love of God in Christ. Right? And we see, do we see Jesus speak about people who teach this kind of junk and teach this separatist attitude in all these man-made commands? Matthew 15, 8 and 9. Jesus says, These people honor me with their lips. He's talking about what God says. But their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. So what they do is they equate their words to God's. They equate their law to God's law, and in doing so, most of the time, will nullify God's commands to go and pursue people. Um, so we can see that, that if a tradition or a rule is not stated in Scripture, right, or at least deduced from it, that it's worthless. And what I mean by that is traditions are only as valid as they are biblical. Again, because the Bible is the only authority we have for faith and practice. And then lastly, I think this is the most popular thing that we see. Right? This is the one that, it makes me sad, honestly. This is the most pervasive thing that we see in churches, that it's creeping in, and it's, it's bad in, uh, like, my mother's generation, and it's getting worse in ours. Um, and that's the authority of letting our emotions and letting our feelings dictate what we believe about God and how we should live instead of Scripture. That we would let how I feel or what I think. That instead of going to God's own words to see what he thinks or he declares or what he does or what he doesn't do, that we would instead trust ourselves. Right? That we would be arrogant enough to say, I think God is like blank or God wouldn't blank and then be in direct opposition to what the Bible says God does or doesn't do or what he thinks or doesn't think. Right? And how foolish is that? Think about this for a second. How foolish is it to let your own thoughts and your own emotions dictate what you believe about God instead of the Bible? How often do your emotions shift in a day? Think about that. You know, how many times can you recall your feelings towards a given issue switching? Right, think about that. We are ridiculously unstable. Right? Human beings are incredibly unstable, and we're known to get stuff wrong on a regular basis, right? Like, I can't go for a trip with Autumn to Columbus without us getting in an argument about I should have turned left, and I was wrong, right? If I get stuff like that wrong, what makes me think that I can get things about God right by myself? That doesn't make any sense. How can you trust yourself? God says you actually can't trust yourself, right? You can't actually trust your own heart to tell you what to think because you are awful, Right? We, myself included, Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? Right? We're wicked. Our hearts will lie to us, period. Your thoughts, your emotions will lie to you and tell you what you want to hear instead of what God says. Right? Like my boys in Seymour who make all the clothing, like their heart thing with the scythe. Don't trust your heart. Don't follow your heart ever. Follow Scripture. But what happens is this, and I can sympathize, right? So I don't, I'm not just up here like beating a pulpit. What happens is this. Um, we'll befriend a non-Christian, and we'll let our feelings dictate our doctrine. And what I mean is this. Um, you'll befriend someone who's gay, right? And, and you love this person. And glory to God, befriend them, right? Like, please, love them. Show, them. show them the love of Christ. And then you'll think, you know, this 
I, I know they're gay, um, and they're a really good person, and I really care about them, and I see how kind that they are, and I, I, I know that Paul said that practicing homosexuality is a sin, but did he really mean that? Could Paul have gotten it wrong, right? It, 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 because I don't want it to be true. I, I don't want this person to have to repent, right? Because they don't want to repent, and they don't want to trust and follow Jesus. So I'm willing to become soft on what the Bible explicitly says and think that God's just going to give this person a pass and never have to talk to them about it because I love them so much. We let our feelings dictate what we believe about sin. Right? Or, or we befriend a, a someone who's an atheist and think, you know, this person's really good. I see that they're kind, that they're nicer than most Christians. Surely God can give this person a pass, um, you know, because he didn't reveal himself enough in nature. He hasn't given them a good enough reason to believe. Surely God can give them a pass because Jeff is just such a good guy. And we let our feelings dictate our doctrine or this. And this is a big one that I see more than those two. Um, we'll experience a sin. And can we be honest for a second? Sin is fun sometimes. Like, I know we're in church, but like, we can all be honest for just a minute. Sin is fun for a season. Like, the Bible even says that. Like, it's cool. It's not cool. I didn't, don't take that out of context, please. Um, I mean, like, it's cool to admit it. Like, it's fine to admit it. You're in a safe place here. But sin's fun for a while. And what we'll do is we'll really like what we're doing, whether it's porn or whether it's sleeping around or whether it's getting drunk occasionally or whether it's lying or being greedy or whatever it is, and we'll like it and we'll justify it and we'll think, God really doesn't mind. It's really not that big of a deal because it's so good. How can this hurt anyone? What's the big deal? It's not that. God must not mind too much. And how arrogant is that? All three of those examples, how arrogant is that, that God would say, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. This is what I do. And we would stand bold to his face and say, no, you're not. You're not like that. Think about that. How arrogant is that? That is madness. That makes absolutely no sense that we would be willing to do that. That is nothing less than idolatry of self. That is self-worship. That is blasphemy against God. That he would say how he is, and we would say, no, you're not. Or this is how you would be saved, and we say, no, it's not. It's a wicked mindset that attempts to dictate to God what he is, and what he is, and what he hates, and what he loves. I mean, I'll, be, I'll be straight with you. I, we could do example after example and see how God's word beats them all. Right? But I, I want you guys to know this. That this doctrine that we've been talking about this whole evening, um, that the Bible has authority over us, isn't just a way that we have good, right, solid doctrine. It's a, it's a lot more than that. Like This is the sure, solid bedrock of our faith. Right? Our life is built on this whole thing. It, listen to me. Here's what I mean. Like, trusting the authority of God's word is, gives us a place to hide in. Hear me on that. It gives you a place to run to. It gives you an unshakable place to ground your lives when you don't know what to do. So when we don't know what decision to make and we're confused, right? What do I say? Should I take this job? Um, you know, how, how should I treat my family? You know, should I apologize to this person? Like, what, what do I do in, this, in a given situation? What college do I go to? What classes do I take? What major? Whatever it might be. And we don't know what to do. Where are you going to go? Right? Are you going to go to the world's opinion that says do what you feel? And you're like, well, I don't know what to do. So that's kind of a problem, right? Do what you feel. I have no idea. Are you going to go to yourself? Again, you don't know what you're doing. Are you going to go to the Bible? The Bible is the very wisdom of God that will inform your decision, right? The Bible will give you instruction and principles to live by that will govern your decision-making process. It's a sure, rock-solid place to go, but not just decisions, right? Let's get really real for a second. I'm going to get kind of dark. Where are you going to go 
when something awful happens? Where are you going to go when your two-year-old daughter is diagnosed with cancer? Where are you going to go when your spouse dies? What are you going to do? When life beats you down, where will you turn? Will you turn to the world that tells you God really isn't involved, evolved, or involved? He, he made everything, and he just kind of sits back in heaven and just lets you do your own thing, and he doesn't really get involved in your life. Are you going to buy that version of God that the world would tell us? Are you going to go to religious tradition that says, you know, you're probably being punished for not following our rules. That's probably why all this bad stuff's happening to you. Or are you going to go to the scriptures that says God is sovereign? And not only is he in control, but he loves you. And he has proven his love for you. And that while you hated him, while you were a rebel against him, he sent Christ to die for you. And furthermore, all things that you suffer in this life is nothing compared to the glory that awaits you. And he's using all of the trials that you go through to conform you to the image of Jesus. And it's all for his glory. You're good. That sounds like a much better option to me. Where are you going to run? And where are you going to turn when you fail? Where are you going to turn when you morally fail? When you sin, when you do something that you know that you shouldn't have. Whenever it's keeping you awake at night, that you know you dropped the ball, that you know you've screwed up, where will you run? Are you going to run to the world that's going to tell you, no, it's really no big deal, you know, sin, nah, God really doesn't care what you do. But you know that's not true. That's what's bothering you. You know deep down that's not true. I've truly done something that I ought not have. How can I get this feeling to go away? How can, how can I be reconciled to God? I know that I've done something wrong. You can't go to the world. Are you going to go to a religious tradition that says, try harder to be more obedient. Try harder to obey better. But the problem with that is the more that you try, the more that you fail. Are you going to go to yourself? Because you're going to tell yourself to despair, give up. There's no use trying anymore. You screwed up. You keep screwing up. You can't fix your situation. Or will you turn to the word of God that says Jesus has already paid for all of your moral failures from the moment you believed? And the word that says God loves you in Christ. And as long as the Father loves the Son, He will love you. He will never stop. So keep pushing. All that to say there is no true lasting peace for our hearts outside of God. And there is nowhere truly safe and good for us to go outside of his truth. We have to have an anchor. There is so much at stake with the Bible's authority. It's where we find peace. It's where we learn that God is good and that our suffering isn't pointless. But he's using it for his glory and our good. It's where we learn that he's sovereign. He loves us unconditionally in Christ. It's the foundation of everything. And we desperately need something firm to stand on whenever life bears down on us and hurts us. So we have to take the word seriously. Right? Read it. Who just thought I was going to tell you that at the end of a sermon about the Bible? Read the Bible. Right? Read it. Reflect on it. Study it. Meditate on it. Pray over it. And then heed it. Know the word and do the word. Jesus says it. James says it. This book is alive because God is alive and it has the power to change us into new people because God works through his word and begins to work in our hearts and change us. So here's what I challenge you guys to do. If you don't read your Bible, start. 
right? One chapter every day. Every day. Seven chapters a week. That's not very much. It'll take you like five or ten minutes maybe, depending on how slow or fast you read. And if you don't know where to start, I always recommend starting the Gospel of John. It's the fourth book in the New Testament. But get in there. And I say that because of this. Don't let me spoon feed you what you should believe and how you should live. Don't give me that kind of like power over you. Don't let me spoon feed you. And don't accept religious, especially around here, please. Like don't accept religious tradition for the sake of tradition. Don't accept the wisdom of the world and don't trust your own heart to tell you the truth. Trust God's word. He's given it to us so that we would know. So read and think about what you read. Think about what it means. Talk to other people about it. Ask the Holy Spirit for clarity. And if you do that, I can promise you, you won't regret it. There are only positive things that come from the study of the word. So learn what God has said and find your peace in it. Make your home there. Run to it in trouble, and bask in it in times of joy. Find the foundation of life there and live life as it was meant to be lived in agreement with God. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. We don't deserve anything good. All we deserve is punishment, and yet you would instruct us, you would save us, through your word, through what Jesus has done, and that you would use the gospel to save us. God, thank you for not abandoning us to not know what we should do and not know who you are, but that that you would give us this book that tells us who you are. God, I pray that you would put something in us that would just give us this ridiculously insatiable desire to get in the Bible and know you better and know how you want us to live. God, help us to seek your face. Help us to reject all authority that clashes with your word. Father, we know you love us and we know that you wouldn't lead us astray and you've proved that with what Jesus did for us on the cross. But above all things, Father, thank you for sending Jesus to pay our penalty. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.